Well, would you join me as we do each week in opening up our Bibles? We are in the midst of a series in the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians 4. If you want to follow along in a blue pew Bible, you can find Philippians 4 on page 982. So the summer of 1949, 70 years ago, there was a man named Wassily Leontief. And Wassily placed uh, precisely hole-punched paper into a machine that was 25 tons in what we would now call a computer, a word that little to nobody knew at that point. It was called the Mark II. It was held at Harvard University. And these little hole-punched papers represented data points about the U.S. economy. And they were fed into this machine one at a time. And it processed all the data that it got, and it produced a whole new set of data as a result, and it was groundbreaking. And it started giving us information about the U.S. economy and about just economy in general that we would have never known how different industries relate to one another. And this led to Leontief receiving the Nobel Prize of Economics, but more famously, he became known as the father of input-output analysis. You put in a series of inputs, they're taken all together, they are processed, and you get an output. And this um, analysis, however boring it might seem to you, transformed the modern world as we know it. And our lives are more impacted today by computer-processed input-output, more so than probably we'll ever really realize. But before there was ever a 25-ton computer at Harvard, or the current computer, which is 10 ounces on your wrist, the original processor of input, output, is our brain. What we think about, what we let in, what we feed it with, shapes and molds what comes out. Input, output. And nothing will ever replace the brain No matter how good or small or big computers get, no computer will ever be made in the image of God. No computer will ever be able to think God's thoughts. And this morning in our passage in Philippians, we're going to see that the Christian life is a battleground of the mind. A belief that awakens emotion, which then leads to action. Before we say, and we often say, what should I do? What should I do in the Christian life? What should I do in this certain situation? I have to do something. What should I do? The better question is, what, how should I think? In his book entitled Think, John Piper writes this, thinking is one of the important ways that we put the fuel of knowledge on the fires of worship and service to the world. And serious thinking is a means of loving God and loving people. Have you ever thought about it this way, that the measure, the amount in which you are able to love will be measured by how well you think? It's the ultimate input-output analysis, and the Apostle Paul is going to bring us right into the center of it this morning in our passage. So would you follow along with me as I read? We're going to be covering verses 8 through 13 this morning in uh, Philippians chapter 4. And to start, we're just going to read verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, 
whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, We've seen all throughout this short letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, Um, that he uses and deploys language that is often used in contexts like sporting events or um, war and battles and kind of equates the Christian life to it. And he's going to do it in our passage again this morning. And he um, he, he kind of talks about how the battleground of the mind is where it starts. And then from there, it goes into what you put into practice, that how you um, talk and how you act and how you live flows from how you think and, and this is the Christian life. It's thinking and it's practicing and it's thinking and it's practicing and it's mind and it's body and we can't disconnect the two. And then he goes ahead and he rattles off just kind of six patterns of thinking that leads to right living. Um, but here's the interest, interesting thing about Paul, that all six of these virtues that we're going to go through one by one were held in high regard by Greek philosophy at the time. And so Paul takes these things, which were virtues everybody wanted, outside the church as well as inside the church, and he's going to show us that they are best seen, best expressed through a Christ-centered lens. And I think that makes sense to us because every self-help book you can find, any motivational video or movement or series that is out there loves talking about the power of the mind, don't they? Like That's not new Like, the world loves that stuff. Like, talking about the mind and how it starts there and how to overcome. And it's possible to talk about thinking in a way where it sounds more like a TED Talk than it does a sermon. And it can be very motivational and empowering. And these six virtues were popular in ancient Greece, just like they're popular today in our secular world. But Paul's aim is to take them and show them how their best expression is when they're centered on Christ. These are six inputs into your mind that will lead to a Christian output, if you will. And taken together, it will give us a grid of how to think. You can't get more relevant of a sermon than how to think. So here we go, six inputs. We're going to go one at a time quickly. Um, Number one, whatever is true. Whatever is true, and Paul's talking about truth in the the broad sense of aligning our thoughts with truth. Um, Here's a question for you. Have you ever tried to define truth? What is truth? And I'm asking that because if you have tried to answer, you already know it's way harder than you might think to get words around what is truth. Because here's what happens is in order to define something as truth, you need to refer to it as being true. And and, and so different people at different times have tried to define it. And so somebody might say, well, truth is something that aligns with reality as it really is. And so the question there is, okay, who decides what reality really is? Whose reality do we get to talk about? And say, okay, I have a different approach. Something is true if it can be defined scientifically. The scientific method, the scientific theory, it gives us the ability to find out what's true and what's not. But any scientist who's intellectually honest and knows their stuff knows that the scientific method requires preconceived notions to be true before it can prove something to be true. 
And so if, even if you want to limit truth to the idea of kind of math and science, 2 plus 2 is 4, that's true, we can prove it. A lot of our world and a lot of our lives and a lot of our thinking depend on truth claims that are not related to math and science. So from a Christian worldview, by faith, the claim is that all truth must be God's truth, that God is perfect and everything true must come from God as a source of truth, which is why we believe God's word is inerrant, is without error. That's a fascinating comment for many. It's, it, a lot of people approach that with skepticism and I understand why. But if you think about it, we believe it is without error because if nothing false can come from God and the Bible is self-proclaimed to be God's word, then nothing in it can be false. Which is why I say routinely, if anyone ever comes up here on a Sunday morning and decides not to open this book, you should leave this church. This is truth. It's God's truth. And there's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There's just God's truth. And Paul has laid out the foundational truths all throughout this letter. That, that the power of the mind is not that you just need to overcome. And you need to find what's strong in you to overcome whatever is in the world. Paul has laid out that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That is truth. Now, we don't control our own destiny as hard as we try to fight back against that. We have far less control in this world than we think we do. That Paul is not now switching at the end of his letter when he's getting very practical. He's not switching to a spiritualized self-help technique. Paul is not the ancient version of Tony Robbins telling you you can control your happiness. No, he has said what's true is that we are unable to save ourselves due to sin. What's true is that God in his infinite wisdom and grace sent his son to die on the cross for that sin. What's true is that by believing in him, which is to say to put our faith in him and who he is and what he's done, that God forgives us. And what's true is that from that moment, God begins to transform us from the inside out. And what's true is that through him, through the spirit within us, we can walk in real truth. We can recognize truth and we can live holy lives. Whatever is true, think about these things. Think about the gospel. Start there. Number two, whatever is honorable. This word, it's commonly seen in the pastoral epistles. It's seen in First and Second Timothy. It's seen in the book of Titus to describe what leadership in the church should be like or should be modeling. And it's often translated in those letters, dignified, same word. So this word kind of shows us that there's a, there's a certain sense of moral distinction that we see in others that is worthy of respect. And church leaders should, and we do it imperfectly, should live in such a way that is worthy of respect. Um, maybe a way to think of this is a person you meet and you're just around them by their actions, by the way they're talking, just the, the spirit they have in them that encourages you to respect them, to honor them. Honor is often used to celebrate military sacrifice, and rightfully so. The highest medal in the military is the Medal of Honor. And if you go and you read stories online about people who have received the Medal of Honor and what they did to receive that, it's always worthy of respect. 
where somebody, a man or a woman, gives their lives for others. They're in a situation where they said, I'm going to put myself in danger so that others can go free. Does that sound familiar in the Bible? Something that's worthy of honor, everything pointing us towards Christ, the ultimate one who is honorable, who saw somebody in danger and said, I'm going to put myself in there. I'm going to think less of myself. I'm going to think about self-sacrifice. This is honorable. Number three, whatever is just. It's a third input into our brains. Whatever is just. Just is a close cousin to truth. Because to do what's right is to first know what's right. You know what's right and then you do what's right. That's justice. It's a right action flowing from a right way of thinking that flows from God's character. Isaiah 30, 18 says, For the Lord is a God of justice. God does everything right. Have you ever thought about that? He has never messed up. Man, I'm like, I lost count from this morning how many times I've messed up. God just doesn't mess up ever across history. He has not messed up. He does what's right. And we love the idea of righteous justice. We, we evaluate judges on based upon whether or not they're right. We want justice in our world. We want the right thing to happen based upon the evidence that we have. And to be just is kind of more simple than we often think. It's being committed to do the right thing. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are equipped to know what's right, not in every situation, but to, to have that wisdom in us to know what is right and then to do what's right. And if you think about every single day, how many dozens and dozens and dozens of, of decisions you have to make, and you have oftentimes a, a decision to do the right thing or the wrong thing. I have my, my dad's voice, and it was a sermon one time. I don't know why I even remember it, but he, he kind of just said, through all the clutter in life, through all the confusion we have, how about this? Do the right thing. And he wasn't preaching law. He wasn't neglecting grace. He was just saying, ultimately, we often know what we need to do, but we, our obedience needs to follow. Do the right thing. Nike, right? Just do it. And a believer with the Holy Spirit within them has what it takes to do the right thing. Whatever is just, think about these things. Number four, whatever is pure. When we speak about purity and we talk about purity, our minds tend to immediately think in terms of sexual purity or sexuality. And that is a massive topic, but it's not just limited to that. That, that there is value in moral purity. And it's not very popular to be considered pure or to pursue purity. But if you think about it, the more pure gold is, the more precious and valuable it is. And so it is with our thoughts. The more pure they are, the more precious and valuable and effective your mind will be. So my question, and it's a big question, is do you protect your thoughts Do you protect your thoughts? You know, in this world, we talk a lot about protecting ourselves physically, and we do things to reflect that. We, we lock our doors at night. And we wash our hands after we go to the bathroom. 
and we try and exercise, we try to eat a certain way, and we want to get to know people before we trust our lives to them. We want to get to know a babysitter before we trust our children to them. We have a lot of things in place to protect our physical well-being. But I find we can be far less discerning with protecting our thoughts. And we're far less discerning as to what we're allowing into our minds. What we allow ourselves in our media-consumed world to hear, to see, to listen to, to dwell upon. I'm talking music. I'm talking shows on Netflix. I think there is a massive lack of discernment. And it can happen to Christians over what we allow ourselves to hear and see in our day-to-day lives. Think about this. Just a picture of at night, if you're home alone, and you decide to make sure the whole house is locked down to keep you safe, but then you go binge watch a show on Netflix that has us revel in and enjoy the things that are opposed to God. It's insane. It's emotional neglect to yourself. It's self-inflicted spiritual abuse, and I don't say that lightly. It's the equivalent of letting yourself go physically of just having no discernment as to what I'm just constantly watching or allowing myself to listen to. Whatever is pure. Think about these things. Number five, whatever is lovely. Uh, The word here connotates the things that are aesthetically lovely, physical beauty. So so Paul is talking about the beauty of creation all around us. He's saying, open your eyes to the world. There's a lot of beauty in this world. From from people to sunsets to a crisp, fresh air on a fall day to a work of art to a well-drawn-out play-action pass. Nobody else? Okay. Um, to a kid's craft on your bridge, He's, the, the beauty of life. He said, think about these things. Look at these things. Dwell upon these things. I think we would be amazed if we simply took the time to dwell upon beauty that is all around us and what that would do in us. And if that sounds mystical to you, that sounds a little new agey, consider that Paul is saying, whatever is lovely, think about these things. Number six, whatever is commendable, Commendable being the kind of conduct that is spoken highly of by other people, that, that we see something that somebody does, and we say, that, that's a commendable thing to do. That is praiseworthy. We have in us a desire to praise something we see as being commendable. And again, it doesn't, I don't think we need to work too hard to see what Paul is doing here to connect the dots, that we have a God who, above all else, is worthy of praise. And he creates in us a desire to see and notice and dwell upon things that are commendable. So these are six inputs. These are six virtues, not an exhaustive list. I'm sure Paul could have just kind of kept going and kept going. But he puts these six in as patterns of thinking that were so common in Greek culture that Paul takes it and he redeems it. And he connects them to their true source of power. He said, this is not philosophy. This is Christ-centered worldview. Think of these things things and then Paul says take those thoughts when that input goes in what you've learned and what you've received and what you've heard in me and and other godly people and then practice these things and you're better going to be able to practice these things if you're thinking about these things it's input that leads to output 
And then when you're practicing these things, you're more prone to keep thinking about those things. And you find yourself just in this cycle of, of redemption, this cycle of thinking on the things of God that God uses to mature you, to grow you in the faith, to help you grow others. And conversely, when we don't think on these things and we just get caught up in the cycle, we begin to practice the other things. And then we practice those things and it makes it harder to think on the good things. You know what I'm saying? Mind and body. We cannot disconnect the two. And I just want us to see how practical this is. There's certain sermons, it's a little more difficult to make them like practical, like, okay, how does this affect my life? And you kind of have to like create that bridge. I think all of God's word is practical. I think all of it can be laid on our lives. Some passages are just easier than others. This is the easiest passage to make practical for you. It's estimated that the average person has 50,000 thoughts per day. You do the math on that, that's a little over 2,000 thoughts an hour. And even if that number is somewhat close to being true, that's crazy. You cannot get away from your thoughts. You can hide from people. You can hide from situations. You can distract your thoughts for a time, but you can't get away from them. You've heard the phrase, wherever you go, there you are. So an honest question that every Christian, I think, needs to ask themselves is this. Do you think about what you think about? And I think we can put our thoughts into two categories. That the, the thoughts that stir our affections for Christ and then the thoughts that rob our affections for Christ. And every action is probably going to do one or the other, even those that are morally neutral. Like, listen, the Bible is very clear that there are certain lanes of obedience that we can walk in that we don't have to wonder if we're supposed to do. It also has certain vices and sins that you don't need to think about whether or not you should do this. You don't need to ask yourself, should I get drunk tonight? No. And, like, that's not that hard to answer. It could be very hard for some of us to walk in that, and I get that, but, like, that's not a gray area. But most of life is in these gray areas, especially in our thoughts, things that might be morally neutral that are either going to stir us up for Christ or it's going to rob our affections for Christ and then the practices will follow. We, uh, in the young adult group that, I, uh, that we began back in 2010, um, and that's kind of where my whole pathway for ministry here kind of started, we, we did a, a memorable series in the book of Philippians that a lot of people in those group will still think about and talk about and reference. And one of the most practically um, effective elements of that study was on this passage where the pastor said um, that we need to evaluate the areas of our life, especially the morally neutral areas, and decide what are areas where my heart gets stirred for Christ and how can I walk in that? And conversely, what are my not sinful, morally neutral areas that I just know for me robs my affections for Christ? And he encouraged us to make a list of what are those areas. And I remember making that list, and it really hasn't changed a lot for me since then. It's just a matter of walking in them. So I want to just, again, very practical for us here. I want to share with you how this works out in my life. What are things that might be morally neutral but can rob my affections for Christ if I'm not careful? And the word of things that stir them. And let me say before and I'll say it again after. I'm not saying that you need to do these things. I'm saying you need to decide for your own heart and mind what is this list for you. So a couple of things that robs my affections for Christ if I'm not careful. Number one, sports. 
I love sports. We grew up sports, playing sports, very competitive in our family. Um, but I realized around that time, 2010, 2011, I had to keep an arm's distance from it because I get consumed with it. And I get consumed with my teams, and it really affects my relationships if it doesn't go the way I want it to go. And I was so invested in sports that I just had to say, I can like it and I can enjoy it, but I just can't let myself get too knocked over by it. And by God's grace, he's been able to maintain that, where I love sports, but I just don't care that much at the end of the day. Number two, and this one is, I think, still a battle for me, but just scrolling on social media. It never stirs my affections for Christ. And more often than not, I have found that if I'm going online without a purpose, it will never end well. You know, the internet used to exist in a time where you went to the internet for something and then you left it. Now we're just always on it. And for me, if I just have 20 minutes to burn, I'm like, I'm just going to go on social media. Or if I'm watching TV, I'm just going to start flipping channels and see what happens. It won't end well for me. Ever, for my thoughts, for my mind, for what I'm going to do as a result. Um, another area that robs my affections for Christ is music that glorifies sin. Music that sounds good, talented people, makes me feel a certain way, but the lyrics are awful. And I'm just mindlessly listening and thinking like, well, it's not really affecting me. Of course it's affecting me. Of course, because what's happening? That's input, that's input, that's input, that's getting processed. And, and I, I can just be okay with it. Well, because that song makes me feel a certain way. And I have no regard for what's it actually saying. What's the doctrine it's given me? And then here's one for me. Um, staying up late. You've heard nothing good happens after midnight. For me, nothing good happens after like 8 p.m. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's, just, it's a downward spiral anytime after that time. And so I've known for me, like, why stay up late? I just go to sleep. Which leads me into the, my list of things that stirs my heart for Christ. Morally neutral things. One, early in the morning. I just love early in the morning. It's a lot quieter early in the morning. And there's a coolness to it. And I love just the idea of reading and coffee and listening to scripture and working out. Like that is a cherished time for me that I will waste if I stay up late. And just that time of day and things that just starts stirring my heart for Christ. Uh, number two, being outside. We're such an indoor culture. And if we're not careful, we spend all our time inside. Like just getting outside, like fresh air does something in me that just orients my heart towards the mind of Christ. Um, I put transparent conversation. I, I can do small talk. I can handle sports. I can talk about weather, but I get bored pretty quickly with it. Weekend plans. It, small, talk, small talk is very important in the realm of discourse, but I at some point need to go a little bit deeper. I need to be asked a question. I want to ask a question, and that just meaningful connection with people is something that stirs my heart for Christ. Last, and then we'll move on. For me, and I'm not entirely, entirely sure why, I love reading history. Because I think it just brings me out of 2019. And we need to be brought out of 2019, often. And, and to read the lives of people and cultures of a time in the past, and me thinking that for everything I'm reading about, you know what was still constant in this time? The gospel. The good news of God working in the history of his people and, and, and that I'm better able to rest in the finished work of Christ when I'm reading things in the past and how 
awful they seem to be at the moment and realize it's going to be okay. Whatever's going to happen now, it's going to be in the history book and it's going to be okay. And God will still be reigning at the other side. So again, the question for you is not take my list and make it your list, but what is your list? What are things, if you can take an honest look at your life and say morally neutral things, but I know they tend to draw me away from God's word and from his truth and what things tend to stir your affections for him, get you thinking about him, orienting yourself beyond we know in all of our lives should be Bible and prayer and a community of believers, but beyond that, morally neutral things, what is that list for you, and then how are you orienting your life to ensure that you're in those lanes more often than not? All right, let's read the next few verses here. Philippians 4, 10 to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 is probably the most well-known verse in Philippians. It probably cracks top five in the Bible for most quotable. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And part of my aim for the rest of our time is to show here that this verse often doesn't mean what people think it means when they quote it or they put it on a t-shirt. And actually how its real meaning is far better than the popularized meaning. But Paul is winding down. So he's getting very practical at the end of his letters as he normally does. He's done all the theological groundwork and now he's just helping us to equip us how to live, how to practically live. And as he's winding down, He's going to finish by thanking the church of Philippi for their gift to him, which Epaphroditus brought to him in a Roman prison. And so we saw in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in how you've had concern for me, how you've supported me with this gift. And then he clarifies in the back verse of verse 10 saying, now I've always known you've cared for me. You just didn't have an opportunity until now to bless me in this way. And then he seeks to further clarify that statement By going on again, we've seen this before, a little bit of a mini tangent on verses 11 to 13, where he reveals the secret of the joy in Christian life. The title of this sermon is The Secret. What's the secret? And then after this little tangent in verse 14, he's going to pick up the thank you to the Philippi Church again, which we'll pick up next week as we finish this series on Global Impact Sunday, which if you're new to Grace, it's a Sunday we do every fall to highlight the importance of the local church in global ministry and global missions. And so the way just it's providentially lined up for um, a certain, that week to end up on the last week of this series in the book of Philippians how a local church can make a global impact. That's next week. This week, for the rest of our time, I want to talk about the secret. I want to talk about this little tangent. Paul is super grateful for this gift. And because of their generosity, he's experiencing physical blessing of provision. And he wants them to know that. But he wants to get something else across that's more important. That his rejoicing over this gift does not mean he needed it to be joyful. It's a great gift to be enjoyed. 
but he has seen a lot in his life and he's experienced a lot in his life and he knows how to be content regardless of the situation. Here's where these verses connects with the previous passage. To be content in Greek philosophy was the highest virtue. It was the highest, the crown jewel of Greek Stoic philosophy. And Paul talks about it, but he's going to flip it. And it's going to be very different of how he's going to deploy it. But to the Stoics at this time, contentment was a mindset that intellectuals strove for that would make them self-sufficient in life. To be content was to be detached from all of life's highs and all of life's lows. Which is why the word stoic in our English language means this, quote, a person who can endure pain without showing their feelings or complaining. So this was the highest level for the Greeks, to get to a place where you were a self-contained superman. Life's highs, yeah, didn't enjoy it too much. Life's lows, didn't really bother me. Stoic. This was the highest virtue in Greek culture. So Paul is using a play on words. I imagine when the church of Philippi first read this, some alarm bells started going off in their minds. Like, oh no, Paul has gotten taken by the culture. He's thinking like a Greek. And then Paul plays this out a little bit further. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing whatever life brings. Still sounding very Greek-like, very TED Talk-like, high-minded secret to contentment. What is it? And then he breaks it open in verse 13. He flips it entirely. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul reveals that the secret to contentment is not self-sufficiency, it's Christ's sufficiency. It's not his own strength, it's Christ's strength. And it's not devoid of emotion, where we detach ourselves from life, the highs and the lows. It's a Christ-bought contentment through the emotional ups and downs of our lives. Philippians 4.13 is the most misquoted verse in the Bible. And the reason is because it's most often used as a motivation to win. It's not about winning in life's obstacles. It's not about experiencing triumph. That's often how it's used. It's this biblical motivational speech. I can do anything I want to do. I can go anywhere I want to go. I can do anything I set my mind to. That's how we teach Our culture, isn't it? Like, that's the doctrine of our culture. And look, it's in the Bible. But even though that's often how it's quoted, it ends up disastrous in the end. Spoiler alert, there is plenty of things we can't do. And no amount of self-help motivation will get us there. And maybe because I do like sports and I have a long history of being involved in playing and following sports, this verse gets tossed around in the sports world like a hot potato, man. Like all the time. Like we're going to win and we're going to make the team and we're going to come out on top because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if this was truly used in context, I think athletes might be far less prone to use it. Here's the real use of it in that conversation. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to do my best with God's given gifts that I have. 
and I can win, and I can lose, and I'll be content with either because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a far better meaning. I just don't think as many people will be racing to put it on t-shirts if that was the message. It's not about self-motivating to win at all costs. It's about contentment. A contentment in Christ regardless of what life brings. That all of life is a series of highs and lows. Of good seasons and bad seasons. Of great months and crippling years. And if we live long enough and we experience life enough like Paul, we're going to see plenty of both. And Christ-bought contentment says we can endure all things, whether it be much or it be little, because his strength lives in us. And his power is inside of us, equipping us to enjoy these good gifts in life without making them gods, and to endure the hard things in life without breaking. And True contentment, Christ-bought contentment, it doesn't detach you from this world. It doesn't say, I don't really care what happens to me because I have Christ. It's not how it plays out. I think true contentment enables us to live more fully in the moment, to experience and enjoy the journey with its ups and downs. Because when we lack contentment, we're always thinking ahead, aren't we? We're always thinking for the next thing, when it gets better. We always want things to change. And no matter where we are, when we're not content, we just want what's next. And in the meantime, we miss the joy and we miss God's purpose for us that we have in the moment today. This past week, I came across a poem called uh, Present Tense. Maybe you've heard of it. I want to read it here. Um, You can follow along on the screen. I'll tell you the author afterwards. Tell me if you can resonate with this. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted. The warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was the middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. This was written in 1989 by Jason Lehman, who was 14 years old when he wrote it. Wise beyond his years. And in Christ, I think with Christ-bought contentment, we can rest in the reality of wherever we are because it's right where we are. And he paid it all. And whatever comes for us will come for us. And we'll handle that when it comes. But we're going to enjoy today because his strength is in us. And contentment comes from admitting we can't do it on our own. We can't just be self-sufficient. We don't have what it takes to achieve our own fate. And we might be able to distract ourselves from that for a while. But at some point it will come tumbling down. And especially it will come tumbling down when we come before the Lord. 
but rather we are equipped to live in a Christ-centered sufficiency where the grace of God sustains us to the end, where we can really live fully invested in this life by repenting of our sin and placing our faith in Jesus. This is the ultimate input and output. When the input of Christ-bought salvation is thought about by us, the output of Christ-based contentment is shown by us. This is the secret of the Christian life. And it's an open secret. And the whole world needs to hear. Let's pray.